This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Are we still the same gender we were in January, Halligan? Things are moving so fast. Who knows what we will be identifying with in 2023? Four. What's that amazing Orwell quote? There are some ideas so stupid that only intellectuals believe them. Three. I've had a glass of mulled wine because I set myself the task of looking back over the events of 2022. Dear God. Spiking fuel prices, war in Ukraine. It has been a tumultuous year of news co-pilot but don't worry because we're here for now at least on planet normal one we have welcome once again to planet normal the telegraph podcast with alison pearson ho 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 and me liam halligan well here it is merry christmas co-pilot or almost And it's anyway time to relax because it's too late to post your Christmas cards, postal strike or not. (laughs) Any pre-Christmas clearing up of the spare room can now wait. Santa's reindeers are threatening to work from home. So we've got the perfect excuse not to buy presents. (laughs) And if you haven't got your turkey on order or in the freezer, sacrilege, are there no standards? (laughs) Trying to buy a turkey now, given the bird flu-induced shortage, could well cost you the bird's weight in gold. It's been a long year, Alison, a year of three Prime Ministers and four Chancellors. There have been five Prime Ministers over the last six years, in fact. The five PMs before that, stretching back to Jim Callaghan, who took office in the mid-1970s, they were in Downing Street for 33 years. At the start of this year, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. With a stonking 80-seat majority, the UK was looking forward to a post-Covid economic bounce back. While some of us predicted inflation and a winter of discontent, just saying... Just saying. (laughs) No one could have foresaw the extent of this cost of living squeeze, with the Bank of England now predicting recession until the end of 2023. What joy. Spiking fuel prices, war in Ukraine. It has been a tumultuous year of news, co-pilot. But don't worry, because we're here, for now at least, on Planet Normal, looking down at the madness of planet Earth. And despite the strikes, the delivery hassles, to say nothing of crazy energy bills and overpriced turkey, it is now the festive season. So let me say to you, Alison, at the end of a tough year, and in recognition of all the hard work that you've done, happy winter closure period. (laughs) Are we still the same gender we were in January, Halligan? (laughs) Things are moving so fast. Who knows what we will be identifying with in 2023? I've had a glass of mulled wine because I set myself the task of looking back over the events of 2022. Dear God, what a sod of a year it's been, Halligan. It's been tough. In fact, January feels like it was about a decade ago, doesn't it? I mean, it literally doesn't feel like it was the start of the year. In fact, I thought there was so much craziness as you said in calamity that it feels like 2022 is basically a year of the ultimate pub trivia quiz that's what the entire year must have been scripted by someone who wants to do so like who was sue gray and what was in her report who had the shortest ever term of office in number 10 
What did Chris Pincher do or not do? How many parties did Boris Johnson say he hadn't attended? I mean, oh, honestly. And going through, as you said, three prime ministers, four chances, exchequer, several budgets, one market crash. I noticed that we'd had three health secretaries, including the present incumbent Steve Barclay. You know that Hollywood game about six degrees of Kevin Bacon, they call it. So I've worked out that 2022 is basically six degrees of Steve Barclay. So if you ever have to answer anything listeners about 2022 just give the answer Steve Barkley because he's been he's been the chancellor he's been the health secretary he's probably been foreign secretary Liam and if you want to sound really cool Steve Barkley but I prefer his earlier stuff it's also the year Alison where Sir Jeff Hurst's incredible record of being the only person to score a hat-trick in a world cup final has been matched by Kylian Mbappe but to me Kylian Mbappe lost the World Cup, so Jeff Hurst won. So in some senses, at least, his fantastic record still stands. But I guess we do have to say congratulations to the Argentinians. They played well. I thought they were a little bit cynical in the way they hacked down the French in the last half hour of that incredible match. But at least England won the Fair Play Cup, didn't we? We received just one yellow card in the whole tournament. I think the English men, they need to get a bit of the Jill Scott going. Yeah. When Jill Scott was barking in the face of the German defender. But I think we need to check, Alison, on the year that we've had, because the beginning of it does seem so long ago. So what we're going to do during this special Christmas end of year Planet Normal is we're going to look back at some of the highlights of this last year on the rocket of right thinking, the capsule of common sense. You'll remember back in mid-January 2022, when we invited Lord David Frost onto the rocket. He'd resigned from government very, very recently. He was seen to be somebody who'd really helped to save Christmas, Mm. forcing the then Prime Minister's hand, Boris Johnson. And what a pleasure it was to have him once again in the Planet Normal cockpit. I think the important thing is, is looking forward now. And, you know, I'm a bit worried that... You know, the debate at the moment about COVID is about, OK, we've got a mild variant, so it's OK and we can all go back to normal. Well, you know, maybe the next one won't be. And I don't want to find us. I hope we won't be in the same debate about, you know, do we go back to lockdowns if the next one is, is more dangerous? I would like to see the government ruling out lockdowns for the future, repealing the legislation, ending them. We can't afford it. It doesn't work. Stop doing COVID theatre, vaccine passports, masks, stuff that doesn't work and focus on what does work. So we're ready. If the next one is worse, you know, stuff like ventilation, antivirals, proper hospital capacity managing it properly. That's what we need to be focusing on going forward. I think that phrase COVID theatre, Alison, really punched through. Suddenly, everyone was using it, including a bunch of journalists who'd been cheerleading for lockdown, who suddenly pretended that they'd always been against (laughs) lockdown. Do you remember them? A few of them blocked me on Twitter. I hope you're listening. I do think when historians look back, though, it will be seen to be true that the likes of David Frost and indeed the COVID research group in the House of Commons, they're the ones who really forced the Prime Minister to not cancel Christmas for a second year in a row. And as you said brilliantly on Planet Normal, Alison, at the time, it wasn't that Boris Johnson held his nerve. 
he had his nerve held for him. Yeah, I mean, David has been such a boon, hasn't he? I think he's got so many admirers. I just wish that that kind of high intelligence and sanity was more in evidence in public life. And we mentioned, didn't we, on the podcast last week that Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance in their uh, latest report on the handling of the pandemic warned that if a vaccine didn't show up soon enough next time, we might have to lock down for longer. So I'm not sure. I mean, I do think that 2022, we can look and think it was the slow beginning, I think, of the admission of what it had all cost. But there are an awful lot of powerful people who will never want to admit that they made these absolutely horrendous mistakes. So it's interesting what's going to happen. And we've got the COVID inquiry coming up next year, haven't we? And I'm just hoping that enough variety of opinions can be fed into that. And it's not all about if we'd closed the airport sooner, which is what I dread. So we have a broad range of guests on the Rocket of Right Thinking, don't we, Alison? From the high intellect of former Mandarin Lord David Frost, we then welcomed a soap star. Yes, we did. Fantastic Denise Welsh. I would think that Denise could hold her own with David Frost, actually. She's a formidable woman. And as we said, co-pilot, you know, taking a stand against lockdown, some of those absurd and cruel restrictions could be a very lonely business, as we found here on The Rocket. Thank God for all the lovely listeners helping keep our spirits up. There were hardly any celebrities who were prepared to challenge the official narrative. In fact, many joined in the public pylons against people who dared to suggest that sitting down to eat a scotch egg rather than standing up to eat a scotch egg was not really part of a sensible public health strategy. But Denise (laughs) Welsh was a shining exception to that miserable rule. Denise, as you said, Liam, she's a celebrated actress. She's appeared on Corrie and Hollyoaks. She's a regular panellist on ITV's Loose Wind and a winner of Celebrity Big Brother. Denise's dad was in hospital for some of the pandemic and she very early on, I think, woke up to all the brutal contradictions that were going on. She fought tooth and nail both for her right to visit her father. She actually thinks she and her sister being able to go in and visit him kept him alive in hospital and for the rights of millions of others, so many people, we think of lovely Robert Styler and Josephine, all those people who couldn't visit their parents, their husbands and wives and care homes and hospitals. And I think that Denise's authentic scorn and outrage came through in a blistering interview. With the exception of you and a few others, most journalists have not done their job. I put the other day, some big journalist had said, you know, almost like breaking news. Some deaths may be with COVID, not of COVID. And it's like, what are you talking about breaking news? We've known this from the absolute beginning of time and have been praying for it and the other people going yeah oh thank goodness we didn't lock down because we didn't need to again oh brilliant you know blah 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 it's like hang on a minute at prime minister's briefings all of you journalists who are now braying about you know it you never once you never once said anything other than but why aren't we locking down sooner prime minister lockdown lockdown other countries are locking down why aren't we locking down And we know that we've got a prime minister who just likes to be liked by people. And, you know, what are you asking him what the colour of his shoes are, for God's sake? (laughs) What's that amazing Orwell quote? There are some ideas so stupid that only intellectuals believe them. (laughs) And what Denise Welsh demonstrates there is 
plain speaking, from the heart, mm. full of common sense, reflecting the views, I would say, of the silent majority of people in this country. It was madness how we acted during lockdown, I think. I don't think it was madness to go for lockdown at the very, very beginning because we didn't know what this thing was. But after a while, it was just groupthink. It was an inability for people in positions of authority to admit that they needed to change their strategy as we went. Smart management is about iterative strategies. You change, you tap the tiller here and there. Mm. You make adjustments as more evidence comes to light rather than dying on a hill of a policy, which I think it's now unanswerably true. It did far more harm than good. Yes, it absolutely did far more harm, Liam. And I think that we'll talk about it a bit later because with the various guests, but by the week, there is more evidence, isn't there? Some terrible tidings of health problems and so on and child mental health and all those kind of things. And good on Denise. Thank God for people like Denise, you know, the best of British really calling it like it is. And of course, as we came out of COVID lockdown, that was when Russia invaded Ukraine in mid-February 2022. Yeah. An event that's completely dominated both the global economy and global diplomacy ever since. Big spike in energy prices, which in turn has been absolutely crippling for the household finances, business finances and so on. And early in that period, Alison, back in February, we interviewed Sir Tony Brenton on who was really to blame for the Ukraine war. Sir Tony was UK ambassador to Russia from 2004 to 2008, an incredibly thoughtful man who sometimes raises eyebrows because he insists on seeing events, not just from the British point of view, but also very occasionally turning the telescope around. We simply haven't taken Russia seriously enough and haven't taken Putin seriously enough. After the Soviet collapse in 1991, Russia was economically extremely weak, militarily in security terms, also extremely weak. At that time, I'm afraid the United States in particular made it an active project to take advantage of Russian weakness and to build up NATO. And that policy has been maintained in the teeth of, yes, George Kennan was absolutely right. Other people have said corresponding things about how dangerous this policy was. Margaret Thatcher wrote to Gorbachev in 1985. So before the reform process really got going, and what she said to him was, we know that you are as entitled as we are to feel secure. She understood that a peaceful Europe depended upon Europe's major powers feeling secure. And unfortunately, we have not lived up to that. Russia has made it clear that the expansion of NATO undermined its sense of security, and we're now paying the price for that. So, yeah, we bear a lot of responsibility for what happened. I think it was really valuable, Liam, to hear from Tony Brenton, as you say, tremendously knowledgeable about the region. Unfortunately, I think one of the effects of the dreadful atrocities in Ukraine is that it silenced any more nuanced debate, understandably, really, because, you know, when women are being raped and 
children traumatised, it's very difficult to, as you say, see from the other end of the telescope. But I think we always say this, don't we? History will reveal, I think, that the West handling of Putin was very inept. And for me, I think, looking from the UK perspective, that one of the things that the war has revealed is been the way that Europe and, you know, particularly the UK, very, very stupidly had all of its energy eggs in that particular basket. Again, we'll look back, Liam, I think that was absolute madness that successive governments in the UK had really grossly neglected our energy security. I would say arguably the worst policy mistake over the past 25 years recklessly, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and we'll do so next year as well, pursuing a net zero target by 2050, regardless of minor concerns like how are people going to heat their homes if the wind doesn't blow? The war's pulled back the skin on a lot of things, hasn't it? I think that's right. If any good can come from a really ghastly conflict, then it is a proper examination of our energy policy, net zero and so on. The entrails of these kind of subject areas were the preserve of nerds. Very few journalists really took a serious interest in them, but they certainly are now. And I think that's a good thing. I think throughout 2023, we will see both sides suing for peace of some time. People like Henry Kissinger are now weighing in. He wrote a piece in The Spectator very recently. The time is approaching to build on the strategic changes which have already been accomplished and to integrate them into a new structure towards achieving peace through negotiation. Of course, to many people, that sounds like appeasement. But pretty much any war is ended Mm. where there's some kind of negotiation. And I think some of the rhetoric we're hearing from the White House now is also preparing for that moment. But we have a range of different voices on Planet Normal, don't we? Tony Brenson, of course, a distinguished diplomat from the UK. And then you welcomed a distinguished diplomat from Down Under. Yeah, Alexander Downer, absolutely splendid man, wonderful character. And he was at the centre, really, of another huge story in the UK this year, which was the small boats crossing the channel, bringing a record number of asylum seekers to the UK, around 40,000 this year. And you can see how current and topical the story is, Liam, because we talked to Alexander back at the beginning of the year. And this week, we've seen government plans to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda, which Alexander was heavily involved in our have been ruled lawful by the High Court this week. That's a topic for another day. So I did decide to invite Alexander, one of the world's leading authorities on this problem of migration aboard the rocket. As you say, Alexander was Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs in the John Howard government, where he played a pivotal role in Australia's offshore detention scheme, which did help to turn the tide on illegal migration. And I asked Alexander to reflect on how effective was his own Pacific solution policy in stopping illegal migrants coming into Australia. It's been incredibly effective. It really has been effective. I mean, I wouldn't say no illegal migrants ever come to Australia. They do. And of course, there are other ways they can get into Australia. No, it's been incredibly effective. And The public are pleased about that because the public think, well, we're maintaining the integrity of our immigration system. It's not being subjected to the whims of people smugglers or the profits of people smugglers and organised crime gangs. The government decides who comes to Australia in the circumstances in which they come, to use a phrase, 
and the public are happy with immigration as long as you know who's coming to the country and the immigration is rational and controlled. Uncontrolled immigration has always been very unpopular in Australia. That was back in February, Alison, and that turned out to be a very prophetic Mm. guest choice by you, if I may say so. I think into 2023, the small boats crisis will continue. We're going to end up with 45,000, 50,000 people Mm -hmm. this year in small boats. It's remarkable to me that there haven't been even more of the ghastly tragedies that we've seen with with people dying in in icy waters. You You don't want to be bobbing up and down in the channel in casual clothes at any time of year. No, you know, it's no. it's the, the busiest shipping lane in the world. It can be surprisingly rough as well, by the way. And you see pictures of people setting off to sea in basically toy dinghies, not a life jacket between them in some cases. And I think this debate will pivot over the year to come on the question of ECHR. It was interesting to me, just a few weeks ago, Peter Lilly came on, Planet Normal and said in his view we didn't need to leave ECHR and to do that would be quite incendiary in the current context we could actually implement new British legislation it seems that Rishi Sunak may indeed be going down that route now I really got the impression from Alexander Downer that he thinks that there's a problem, an institutional problem within the Home Office itself. We know, Liam, that other countries are capable of putting asylum seekers from safe countries back on the next plane. Uh, We're no different from them. So I think another theme that emerged in 2022 was a sort of parallel government within the civil service in various departments, but notably in the intransigent Home Office, which sees off Tory government attempts to implement policies that were in the Conservative manifesto. And I think, as you said, if Rishi Sunak doesn't grip this problem in the next year, then that's going to be electoral suicide because Conservative voters have just about had enough. And this is a real red line for them. I think that's right. I'm sure that's a theme that we will return to. And it'll be interesting to see how Labour plays the small boat issue too, given its electoral potency. Another big theme that we grabbed throughout 2022, Alison, which I think a lot of the rest of the media is now daring to breach as well, is NHS reform. We had in May the excellent Tim Knox, who's a researcher at the Civitas think tank. He performs a good public service because he regularly collates and produces in pamphlet form lists of health diagnostics produced by the OECD and compares them across countries. Tim's study, and we interviewed him just as it was being published in the spring, shows unequivocally, unarguably, that out of the 17 most advanced countries in the world, Britain with its NHS, the best in the world as we are often told it is, Mm -hmm. had the worst health outcomes in many instances and overall was 16th out of 17 countries particularly when it came to cancer, stroke and heart disease outcomes. Even Wes Streeting now on the Labour front bench is talking about reform of the NHS as opposed to just endless amounts of money. And I genuinely believe that at least this wave of discussion about NHS reform dates back from last spring when we started talking about it on Planet Normal. It is now held up as such a sacred cow 
and it is thought of by the media, by the Westminster Village, by all the usual suspects, that it is such a wonderful institution that somehow has complete public support, which is obviously not the case, that it is beyond criticism. And so there's always this confusion about how we all went out and clapped for the NHS during the pandemic. We weren't really clapping for the NHS, so I don't think we were. We were clapping for the dedication and hard work and sacrifices being made by the many hundreds of thousands of people who work for the NHS. We were not clapping for the system. It is time we recognised that the system is failing. It's not a question of money. It's not a question of our lifestyles. It's not a question of individual failings of doctors and nurses. It's a systemic failing, and one which, until we get that message out there and debated cleanly and positively, then we will continue to bounce along the bottom of the league tables. And this is not just a statistical exercise or an academic bit of work. It's about tens of thousands of people dying unnecessarily every single year. You know, Liam, that was a brilliant choice of guests by you. That Tim Knox interview, it's been so central to my journalism this year. The NHS has been a constant theme in my Telegraph column. And I think why it emboldened me to speak out is because every time you talk about this, people from the left weigh in and they say, oh, what do you expect after 12 years of appalling Tory cuts? That's always the thing they come back with. You've starved the NHS, our wonderful NHS of resources. As Tim pointed out, the spending on health and social care in England has gone up by 39% in real terms under the Conservatives, yet the services are worse. And of course, this week, that's being brought into sharp focus. We've got the ambulances going on strike yesterday, Wednesday. I mean, the bitter joke now, of course, is who can tell the ambulances are on strike because you basically you've got to have a heart attack. You've got to get in the car and drive yourself to A&E and the nurses are on strike this week as well. Everybody is striking. But I do think since Tim spoke to you that there has been a shift in the public perception of the NHS and that really is to do with the fact that with 7 million people on the waiting list, you and I have talked about this, I think that waiting list is much larger because we know from Dr Clare that there is now a waiting list to go on the waiting list. So I think we could be nearer 9 or 10 million people on the NHS waiting list. So many people have either had problems themselves accessing medical care or they know people who haven't had treatment and are either dying or have died. So it's becoming the actual emotional, practical experience of people is now absolutely countering this mythology that the NHS likes to spread about itself to see off criticism. And just quickly to say that we saw Steve Barkley, little Stevie Barkley, he popped up. He's now the health secretary. Quiz question, (laughs) 10 points. (laughs) His fourth job in seven weeks. But Steve Barkley was in a hospital and got sort of attacked by a lady who has got a little girl who's not very well and she was you know assailing Steve Barkley I don't know you you know these people haven't got the resources and just to say Liam what's emerging now is all these highly paid NHS executives the Amanda Pritchard supposedly CEO of NHS England why the hell aren't they out there 
responding to public criticism. You don't get people in the business department having to answer questions about why certain companies are underperforming or treating their staff badly. Why aren't there enough beds? We keep being told there aren't enough beds in the NHS. Why aren't there enough beds in the NHS? It certainly isn't Steve Barclay who's ordering the beds, is it? I think the debate has shifted. I don't think Wes Streeting, Shadow Health Secretary, waited for the all clear from Labour High Command before he started to Mm. really tap into the emotional anguish now that many of us feel about the NHS. You've got even the likes of the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, regularly issuing reports showing that the health service is getting more money but treating fewer people. I think there is some sympathy for the nurses. I don't think there's much sympathy at all for the BMA, the doctor's union, asking for 26% at all. I think a lot of people are really cheesed off with their doctors, with all respect to my many, many friends who are GPs. Of course, we know some of them are saints, but we also know quite a lot of them are not seeing patients anywhere near the rate that they were pre-lockdown. We will return to that, of course, won't we, in 2023? We certainly will. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, May saw our 100th episode. We had a live event, didn't we? Absolutely lovely. Yeah. One of the distinguished guests was Sir Graham Brady, chairman of the 1922 Committee of Tory MPs. But he isn't just a vote counter, let alone a bean counter, Sir Graham Brady. He's also a very thoughtful man. And I would say Sir Graham Brady, in his quiet, dignified way... Just like Mark Harper, who's now the Transport Secretary, I think we can give him an honorary mention, not least because you quite like him, because he's a natty Tory. Oh, he is. And he looks like a Thunderbird. Thunderbirds, I'll go. (laughs) (laughs) I think Sir Graham Brady was also a key person in terms of convincing the Prime Minister of the time, back then, this time last year, that Christmas wasn't for cancelling. But it was meant to be for three weeks. Three weeks. And, mm. you know, people forget this. The three weeks stretched to three months. And it, all of this went on. We, we hadn't even had a, a single further vote in the House of Commons for six months. And that came because of the amendment that I tabled in September 2020. And I, just, I, I would just say this one thing, because I, I think it helps to redeem some of the people who were um, not always responding to the requests and the arguments that I was putting. Um, Of course, that amendment was never put for technical reasons, Mm. uh, but the government did concede the point Mm. that Parliament should debate and vote Mm. on these things. And by and large, it it happened after then. Uh, But I had a conversation a couple of months ago with somebody who had been in the Department of Health at that time. 
And he said, I just want to tell you, Graham, we sat down saying, well, what should we do? And he said, we all looked at each other and said, well, the trouble is, he's right, isn't he? We should have debates mm. and votes on these things. But it's so easy when it doesn't happen. It's so easy for people to get caught up in the momentum of things. And I think that's what had happened. And it, it should be the role of Parliament uh, to say, hang on, stop. We kind of lost our collective mind a little bit, didn't we? I think we did. It's amazing to hear him saying that, Liam, isn't it? Such a dedicated parliamentarian worrying desperately about the democratic deficit. They basically shut down, like they shut down parts of the NHS, they shut down Parliament. Parliament wasn't even voting on any of these absolutely lunatic things that Matthew Hancock <laughs> was driving through while snogging the aid in the cupboard. Let us never forget that charming detail. Don't forget the bum grip. <laughs> you can always be relied upon to lower the tone, Halligan. <laughs> So another person I hugely admired in 2022 who was a guest on The Rocket is Donna Ockenden. Back in March, we saw the publication of the Ockenden Review of Maternity Services in Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital NHS Trust. Donna Ockenden, a hugely experienced midwife, found that at least 201 babies and nine mothers had died in the hospitals there because of inadequate care. The only reason this devastating scandal came to light at all was because of the remarkable, tenacious campaigning of Rhiannon Davis and Richard Stanton, who lost their baby Kate because of a botched delivery at a midwife-led unit. You know, Liam, I was very affected by the interview with Donna and by the story as someone who, over 20 years ago, ended up with an emergency C-section with my own first baby. I had a really strong feeling of there, but for the grace of God go I. I was so honoured that Donna came on the podcast in one of her very few media appearances. What we definitely saw were many, many cases where my doctors and midwives were absolutely unanimous that an earlier recourse to caesarean section would have led to better outcomes for mothers and babies. We also saw a multi-professional effort, so this is doctors and midwives, to minimise caesarean sections. And we saw many cases, and you will know that baby Kate and Rhiannon Stanton-Davis were one of these, where women were encouraged to have their babies in remote midwifery-led units when actually the clinical signs were such that it was very, very clear they needed consultant-led care. So we found many examples of all of those that definitely led to much worse outcomes for mothers and babies than otherwise would have been the case. You can be very tenacious, co-pilot, and I think you were in this case. It's not that you lobby, because we never really disagree, do we, about the guests that we would have on, but it took you quite a long time to reel in Donna Ockenden. Can I just say, Liam, that Zoe Hitch, our fantastic editor, Zoe was in hot pursuit of Donna, and Mm. Zoe and I, in tandem, worked very hard to get her. And it was an amazing interview, and I know it's hugely close to your heart. And I think it's it was a good example of how your writing and your Planet Normal podcasting, now you know what a podcast is, work in tandem. <laughs> because a lot of that interview then went into your writing, and then the writing thoughts came back to the podcast. And I think that's something that's been happening now over the two years we've been doing Planet Normal. We really mustn't see this as an isolated tragedy, Liam. I think it's absolutely endemic. And there was an astonishing fact in a Telegraph piece by our health editor, Laura Donnelly, that the NHS faces 
a £90 billion bill for maternity negligence, okay? 70% of the total liability provision for NHS negligence is associated with failings in pregnancy and childbirth. What a country, eh? And I would also just add Donna Ockenden and her team are now working on a review into maternity services at the Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. And sadly, co-pilot, I predict that in either 2023 or 2024, we will see another shocking revelation of how giving birth in the UK can too often be a cruel lottery. Aside from the NHS, we also discussed a lot of high politics didn't we particularly in the run-up to the first of what turned out to be two Tory leadership contests (laughs) of course we had Tory leadership contest one of 2022 where Liz Truss went up against Rishi Sunak and of course the Planet Normal's own Penny Mordant somebody who you and I had dinner with we've got to know Penny over recent months and I think you really wanted to win didn't you I did. And I got quite a lot of stick for it because I think a lot of the readers and listeners think Penny's a bit woke for them. I was looking forward to 2024 and seeing what this extremely attractive, warm candidate with a fabulous backstory came from a very, very ordinary home. Parents, mother died when she was young. She was basically a carer for the entire family. She's quite the force, Liam. And since she didn't win. She very nearly got through to the final round and I'm absolutely convinced the members would have picked her and made her Prime Minister. And every week, if you want to see listeners, the Prime Minister we didn't have, I can recommend tuning in to watch Penny Mordaunt as leader of the House of Commons knocking nine bells out of the SNP. I mean, it's a mighty whomping <laughs> at the dispatch box for the dreaded Sturgeonites. She's just, it, she's absolutely wonderful. But I wanted to go into a bit more detail about what had happened, didn't we, during that leadership election. And a guest who came on the podcast is someone I'm a huge fan of also, who is Andrea Ledsom. Andrea served as Environment Secretary, leader of the House. She's been an MP since 2010. She's an extremely accomplished and compassionate politician with a a big interest in early years. Now, Andrea published a very entertaining memoir about the ghastly world of politics, which she manages to remain cheerful through. The book is called Snakes and Ladders, and I can highly recommend that. But I spoke to Andrea, who had led Penny Mordaunt's leadership campaign, on what happened. For Penny, I think what went wrong was potentially not being far enough prepared when it all became live. But also, as we all saw, there was tremendous black ops, as we call it, against Penny. There were people determined to tie her down in trying to justify things, which, you know, is what happened to me in 2016. You know, when you are the outsider, there are people who will stop at nothing to try and tie you up in knots. Interesting, isn't it? Andrea Leadsom herself wanted to be Prime Minister and then lost out to Theresa May. I do think there's quite a lot more to come from her in terms of politics and public life. We also spoke, didn't we, Alison, to Ben Houchen, who's the Tory Tees Valley Mayor, a guy in his 30s, seen by many as the future of the Conservative Party, uh, somebody who's proudly hails from the northeast didn't come down to westminster like many people would have done he stayed in the part of the country where he's from he's close to rishi sunak he's very much the sort of poster boy for leveling up to the extent that the government's actually managed to do any leveling up he's also been over 
the years he's been prominent, a big fan of Boris Johnson, and he really regretted the fact that his own party got rid of the former Prime Minister. Well, I talked about this before the leadership campaign again. I mean, it was blindingly obvious that whoever got into the final two, we were going to see polls come out from various people that would show the final two were not going to achieve the same level of support amongst the membership than Boris Johnson. You were always going to see these three-person polls come out with Boris on top. Another reason why I didn't think we should have got rid of him, and also, to be fair, we've seen that reflected in places like Teesside. Lots of first-time Conservative voters completely bewildered, confused, and actually quite upset that the Conservative Party got rid of Boris. So whatever happens and whoever wins, I do think we will see a backlash as a result of getting rid of Boris, because irrespective of his failings, and the one that actually drove him to lose the leadership and have to resign were personal rather than any political or policy decisions that he made. I think we will ultimately be worse off at the general election for not having Boris Johnson. He's going to come back, isn't he, Alison? (laughs) Just like Churchill came back in 51, he's going to come back. Disraeli came back. The rumour I've heard is the Boris Johnson diary in between multi-million pound speeches that September has got a big question mark written in it. Look, Liam, I think that after the May local elections, I mean, if they are as bad or worse than the notorious Ides of Theresa May elections, when it was, what Conservatives were down to, I think, 9%. If, as I suspect, most of my readers will sit on their hands and say, thanks, but no thanks, I'm not voting for this sorry excuse for Conservatism, then nerves will start fraying, won't they? By the way, the one thing I would say I don't agree with Ben Houch I do think that in the red wall, Boris, there could have been a case of, you know, oh, he's a bit of a character, but we know what he's like. What was becoming increasingly apparent was it in some of the true blue constituencies in the Ashwell and Morden, Tiverton and Honiton, a lot of Conservative voters were deeply unimpressed with the Downing Street perceived party shenanigans, one rule for us, one rule for them. And then Boris, of course, compounded that by saying at the dispatch box, that there had been no illegal parties. We should just mention before we move on, Alison, this was the year that Her Majesty the Queen died. We actually took a week off from Planet Normal because you were writing all day, every Mm. day, fronting the Telegraph's coverage. I was. I thought we shouldn't have an end-of-year podcast without mentioning that. Also, you mentioned Theresa May. I have to say, Boris Johnson gave a great speech in the debate about the Queen's death, paying tribute to her. But so did Theresa May. (laughs) She's got great comic timing. (laughs) Yes, she did. I thought Boris, bless him. I mean, that was the moment, wasn't it? Cometh the hour, cometh the man. And Liz Truss, Prime Minister for three and a half minutes, (laughs) could not soar to the heights of rhetoric. So we did miss him at that moment. Remember also, Liam, that there is this misleading parliament charge hanging over him. So any comeback will have to be seen in the context of what people say about that. Personally, I think it's vindictive. I think he's been taken down and I think pursuing it is is just spiteful. But we'll see what happens. And then you welcomed another oncologist who you really admire. You've really got to know lots of scientists while on the rocket, haven't you, Alison? I have, you know, and I think they're some of our absolutely best people. You know, Liam, that we have always tried from the very beginning of Planet Normal to highlight the collateral damage of lockdowns, particularly of closing large parts of the NHS to treat a virus which really only presented a lethal threat 
to the very elderly and, and those with pre-existing conditions. We always thought, I remember us talking about this when we had Carol Sikora on the podcast, most alarming was the pausing of cancer care, which of course is the most time critical of the main diseases. And we have had this year a number of our most senior oncologists basically sounding the five-minute warning about the unfolding disaster that's going on now. We're not going to see it completely for another couple of years, but already the cancer deaths are up and they can be expected to get much, much higher because people couldn't get the treatment. And foremost among those campaigners is, as you say, Professor Pat Price, visiting Professor of Oncology at Imperial College, Chair of Radiotherapy UK, phenomenal person, researcher in technology, radiotherapy developments, founder of Catch Up for Cancer, all-round superwoman. When Pat came aboard the rocket, I felt you could feel the power of her distress at the scale of the cancer backlogs. It's bad enough having cancer without knowing that you just can't get the treatment you need on time. But right from the very first day of lockdown, we were having people phone up in desperate situations. Where do I go? My operation's been cancelled. I was so distressed about it. It's just not fair on cancer patients and somebody's got to stand up for them. What we're calling for really is we want to meet with the new Secretary of State come with some world-class frontline people, give them some solutions. It doesn't have to be this way, but it will be if you keep ignoring the frontline staff, ignoring the situation and ignoring it so bad. There will be tens of thousands of cancer patients who will lose their lives prematurely because of this. We were already seeing patients coming through late, right in the first six to eight months. We see that all over the place. It's terribly disheartening for frontline staff because they know that difference. And again, once you go over a tipping point, if you've got the spread, then it can't be cured. And of course, also, that means that we actually often we have to do more treatment for patients. So then again, we're running out of treatment capacity. It's a sort of vicious circle. Once you go on that downward spiral, it's not only a more patients' lives going to be lost, but you actually can't catch up and get back to where you needed to be. And I'm like you, I don't understand why nobody saw this coming. I think that was an amazing interview, Alison. I think that was up there with Donna Ockenden in terms of the interviews you've done on Plant Normal this year. That reverberated around a lot of the health service. Certainly that was the feedback I had from many of my own personal contacts across the health service. But it hasn't just been a year when we've interviewed scientists, has it? We've also focused on the economy a lot. And you've added to your renowned expertise (laughs) in... Working Mums with Kate Reddy and your fabulous, I don't know how she does it, novel. You're also now a noted economist. I've created some kind of economic Frankenstein who keeps telling me with incredulity things that I mentioned three months ago. I think you're coming along quite well, actually. I think you're quite promising now. You've been getting to grasp some of the terms, haven't you? On the quiet. And in the aftermath of the incredible Liz Truss, who we've barely mentioned on this podcast, <laughs> Quasi Quatain. God, it's such an incredible year. Lincoln, you miss her. We've missed a whole Prime Minister, <laughs> <laughs> apart from her curtsying skills, which we did mention. Yes. We interviewed, didn't we, former Chancellor Lord Norman Lamont, who remains one of the savviest, in my view, political and economic commentators around. He is active in the House of Lords. I think he's seen in retrospect as a pretty good Chancellor all things considered, though, of course, he was in number 11 when the pound crashed out of the exchange rate mechanism, a mechanism that he never actually wanted 
to join. But when I talked to Norman Lamont, it was a wide-ranging interview that included the market's hissy fit in response to that Kwateng Trust mini-budget. But he also made, in my view, an extremely telling point about the management of the Conservative Party. I'm tempted to say you shouldn't be allowed to remove a sitting prime minister in between general elections. I don't think it'd be a good thing if we go on having different prime ministers every two years. I think this trend, which seems to be in the Conservative Party rather than in the Labour Party, Mm. but it's a regrettable one. And I think Britain's reputation for stability is taking something of a knock. I'm a supporter of Brexit, but... I think the world outside doesn't really understand Brexit and they look at Brexit and then they look at the rows we've had, they look at the changes of leadership and they think, what's happened to Britain? There's something odd happening and I think we need to calm down, get our house in order and show to the world that we are a stable country and a rational country. The really telling point that Norman Lamont made to me, Alison, during that interview was that he thinks the current Conservative Parliamentary Party rules that allow a leadership ballot or a vote of no confidence in the leader to be sparked with just 15% of Conservative Parliamentary members, the threshold is far too low. Mm. It should be 50% or something. Otherwise, you're going to get endless unseatings of sitting prime ministers because sitting prime ministers, they have to do stuff mid-term, which upsets their own backbenchers often. That's what leadership sometimes is. And I think he made a very telling point that I know other senior Conservative parliamentarians picked up on and are now discussing. One of the themes that's cropped up again and again on the podcast this year has been looking back to people like Norman Lamont, people of that sort of stature. We've also talked, haven't we, about the sort of Blairite front bench when we think of the George Robertsons, the Robin Cooks, the Mo Molems. Serious people. With a reforming agenda, all right? Yeah. So I felt they wanted to do something. My complaint with this government, which I have voted for, is what do they want to do? It, it just seems to be endless appeasing of different parties. But let's be fair looking forward, because Sunak and Hunt... They have sort of seemed to have steadied the ship, which I guess was what they were trying to do when they came in after the trust quarting debacle. And before you answer that, co-pilot, I just want to pay tribute to you both as my learned co-pilot coming along very nicely with the economics knowledge. (laughs) I'll get there. (laughs) But also as the economics guru on GB News. Now, you have had more insight and indeed foresight into the events you told me really back at the beginning of the year, in fact, before that, that the Bank of England was wrong and inflation was not transitory, as they described it, that it was really getting its teeth stuck in and that they should have been raising interest rates. And, you know, I paid attention in my own semi-clueless way. And you were absolutely right, weren't you? And does it make you feel frustrated that you, almost a lone voice in saying this, there are a couple of others that you're not listened to? That's very kind of you to say, Alison, but in my experience in journalism, people don't remember that you were right. They don't ring you up and say, oh, when I slagged you off, I was wrong and you were right. They just remember that you're awkward, so they file you under awkward. And I've actually found over the years being prophetic and being shown to be correct has been a net subtraction to my career progression, if I'm honest. I would say that's probably true 
about us on Planet Normal, no one says, oh, well, or very few people say, actually in the business would say, well done you two for saying what a disaster this lockdown thing was going to be and how many people were going to die and how children were going to suffer dreadfully from not going to school and so on. But I feel, and I hope I speak for everyone listening, that we did it for you and you did it with us. And we've been a great gang. And I really felt on the two live events we've done that that sense of comradeship and warmth in the room, I think, reflects that in the end, it does matter that someone tells the truth. It does. It's not going to get you many plaudits. People will be embarrassed and angry with you and whatever. But in the end, it matters, Liam. You know, it matters that someone tells it like it is. It does. And there will be more live events to come. And let's end this end-of-year voyage on <laughs> the Rocket Right Thinking with a few more clips. Here's you speaking, Alison, about the Queen's Jubilee, which, of course, tragically turned out to be the last major landmark in a long and distinguished reign. The striking parallels with these landmarks in Her Majesty's reign. So when Princess Elizabeth ascended the throne, I think they'd just got rid of rationing books. And as she enters her twilight years, she'd probably just be reintroducing rationing books on the way out. But as you say, Kobal, it's been an absolutely top week. So airport chaos, impossible to see a GP, at least six and a half million on the hospital waiting list, ambulances that don't arrive, police who've given up investigating most crimes, civil service departments that don't answer the phone, passport backlogs, you can't take a driving test for at least a year, rocketing fuel bills, you need to sell your house to be able to afford to fill up the car. And how lucky that we have got a Platinum Jubilee co-pilot and we still do pomp and circumstance very well. So to sum up, terrific queen, shame about the country. (laughs) God, you really went into one, didn't you, to use a technical term? We've had some sort of quite sad or grim extracts, but we always do try to have a laugh, don't we? And I think that's something that we keep each other entertained. And talking of laughs, here's you and I talking about the producer price index, (laughs) just the latest in the... (laughs) Armory of analytical (laughs) tools that you now wield as the world-class economist that you've become. (laughs) Pearson, for one house point, what was the PPI in March and what does PPI mean? The producer price index is the cost of inputs firms use to make the stuff they sell us and the PPI hit 19.2% in March. Well done, one house point. But one house point off for not calling me sir. (laughs) So 19.2% is a very, very big number. For thickers like your co-pilot, this could be an indicator of what consumer prices are going to go up to. It's a leading indicator. It tells you where the CPI will eventually go because those cost increases do have to be passed on. And another house point off, Alison, because I've just realised you quoted that exactly from my column of the previous week. (laughs) But then again, you know, you quote loads of or you steal loads of emails, don't you? And stick them in your column. And the final clip, Alison, is you and I singing the new Planet Normal version of an old Christmas favourite. Brighton University has suggested that its staff 
henceforth refer to Christmas as the winter closure period to avoid offending students who are not Christian. So I'd like to wish all Planet Normal listeners a happy winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We wish you a merry winter closure period. We doesn't quite have the ring, does it? Doesn't quite stand, does Ding it? Ding dong merrily on winter closure period. <laughs> Liam, I just want to say one thing, having listened to all those fantastic interviews, there's a lot of mishandling in this country and lots of things aren't working. But when you think of our guests, any one of them, they are good, highly competent, wonderful people. So we still have excellent people. and We just need to have more of them in charge. And now on to our listener emails to end off the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Halligan takes them to bed at night to read and soothe his unquiet ego. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is from Claire. Dear Alison and Liam, where do I go to complain? My long list of things. The word woman can now mean man and vice versa. The education (laughs) secretary is a member of the Stonewall cheerleading team. What are they teaching my kids at school? Shops and offices are leaving their lights on all the time, but I'm threatened with punishment beatings if my thermostat goes above 15 degrees. (laughs) Matt Hancock admits to making it up as he went along, and does anyone care? Boris has made 700 grand. Actually, it's a million now, since he reluctantly (laughs) resigned before the last PM to resign, resigned. Number six, everyone's on strike. Number seven, judges think that men are women. See one above. Number eight, there was a water leak outside the local baker's last Saturday and the water board didn't turn up for 24 hours. Water just flooding the road for all that time and yet I have to turn the tap off while (laughs) cleaning my teeth. Number nine, finally, just stop oil. Need I say more? Merry Christmas from Claire. Oh, fantastic, Claire. Now, once again, Liam, we have an amazing poem from Bob, the Planet Normal Bard. I feel when Bob sends us yet another fantastic verse that like being in the 17th century and the Earl of Pembroke commanding Ben Johnson (laughs) to dash off another sonnet. Anyway, Bob says, Dear Planet Normal, as Britain continues to descend into chaos, here's some more dreadful doggerel to add to the general gloom of Christmas 2022. And Bob calls the poem... The Flight Before Christmas, a poem for the winter closure period. T'was the night before Christmas, but Santa felt blue. All the elves were on strike, and his reindeer were too. With a spiralling cost of carrots and fuel, they demanded more pay in the run-up to Yule. So Santa was stranded with nowhere to go, when suddenly a rocket touched down on the snow. Do you need a lift, Santa? called a voice that he knew. Is that Alison and Liam? Am I glad to see you? They helped him aboard with the sacks from his sleigh. Then the rocket of right thinking was up and away. They circled the planet from Romford to Rome, delivered all the presents, then brought Santa home. He gave them some gifts, which they tactfully took, some leftover copies of Matt Hancock's book. (laughs) Then he waved them goodbye with a jubilant cheer. Merry Christmas, Planet Normal. And have a happy new year. Hooray! Fantastic. And on that poetic triumph, that's it from Planet Normal for another week, for another year. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's my turn and it's got to be Claire, because Bob's won about 15 mugs already. (laughs) So Bob's set up a cottage industry in mug arbitrage. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Claire, email us, planetnormaltelegraph.co.uk, put in the subject heading of your email, mug winner, a wonderful list of complaints. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we jolly well hate you do, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of suspiciously loving reviews in those places, and they cannot all be from the Halligan diaspora, can they? But it does help others to find us so the lovely Planet Normal family can grow. We're now off for a couple of weeks, gorging ourselves on overpriced turkey and after eight minutes, other confectionery is available, recharging the batteries of the Planet (laughs) Normal rocket. But we'll be back in the new year with the next episode of Planet Normal on Thursday, the 12th of January. We'd like to thank all our fabulous guests during 2022 and, of course, our even more fabulous Planet Normal listeners. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view... Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next year. It's goodbye from me. And it's happy winter closure from him. <laughs> <laughs>